My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here. And today is exciting as we start this next section in the book of John. So why don't we pray together that God, by His Spirit, would keep shaping us and fixing our eyes on His Son. Let's pray. Lord God, today as we come and we have heard Your Word spoken, we remember that Your Word never returns empty. So we ask that You'd help us to see the implications of this Word to us today. That we'd see Jesus as You see Him, that we'd see ourselves as You see us. And you might send us away from having heard you speak today, changed, comforted, challenged. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, The way that we think as people, uh, the way that we act and and who we are, is substantially shaped by our experiences of life. It's kind of normal to think about that, that, that the way that life happens to us shapes the way we think about life and what matters and what doesn't. Now, some of those moments in life seem so inconsequential at the time, but can end up having such a large impact on us in the future. I don't know if you've had many of those life-shaping moments. Some of them just bumble away under the surface, and we are who we are because of kind of the, the nurture that's happened in the world around us, or, or, the, or the nature of who we're born, who our parents are. But other moments are larger, and you kind of maybe don't notice the largeness of those moments that shape your life until later, when you look back and you find kind of stepping stone moments, stepping stone moments that help you to be who you are. Well, as we start this Gospel of John uh, and the second half of it today, we're going to see a number of these stepping stone moments that shape what we're here for and really, as we reflect on them, who we are. It was the Gospel of John that provided a stepping stone moment for me, actually. Uh, When I was younger, probably in my early 20s, um, uh, I'd been challenged by some guys I was catching up with that they didn't really believe that the Bible was a historical book. And it kind of started to shake my faith. And so uh, someone suggested, it was a great idea, that I sit down and I read one of the Gospels and just kind of go through and work out, who is Jesus? Is He really who the Bible says He is? And so I sat down and in two readings read the book of John. And I still remember where I was sitting in the first house Sarah and I kind of rented um, on this couch. I still have the Bible that I read through. And on the pages of the book of John out stood Jesus in technicolor dreamcoatness, if you're following Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, Jesus stood out as someone who was amazing, who had an amazing love for us. And, and it kind of made me think through Yes, I could trust this one, as I looked at the evidence that existed, as I looked at the evidence that was around about who he is and what he's done. And that's my prayer for us over the next kind of three months we'll be spending in the second half of the book of John, is that as we trace through John's steps of who Jesus is and what he has done, that God would provide a stepping stone moment for each of us individually, and for us as a church as well, that it might focus us on Jesus and grow us in him, And ground us in His Word so that we will be firmer, more secure, stronger, more loving because of the Jesus we meet in the pages of history. Well, the Gospel of John is a little bit different than the other three Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Matthew, Mark and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they provide a synopsis, a summary, basically, of what went on in the life of Jesus. Kind of a, a chronological telling of the events of the life of Jesus. But the Gospel of John is kind of very different. Uh, He sometimes moves the stories around to show us, from a theological perspective, who Jesus is. It's more theological, God-centered, focused on who God is, than chronological. Now, the others are theological as well, 
what John is doing is painting for us pictures of the events of the life of Jesus and what they mean for us today. In the first 12 chapters of the book of John, John began before the world was even created. In the beginning was God. He starts out uh, with this picture of the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And he begins in this whole point of time and takes us through the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus. It shows us who Jesus is and what he's done. But as we get to chapter 13, John slows down the pace tremendously. He focuses in in a kind of slow motion, ultra high definition exploration of the last moments of the life of Jesus on earth. Each of these encounters will provide for us stepping stone moments. If you've got the eyes to see them, they'll lift us out of the fog of life and set our eyes upon the glory of who Jesus is and the glory we get to share in Him if we trust in Him. In chapter 20, John tells us the purpose for why he's written. John 20, verse 30, it's on the screen. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's where John is taking us, to see who Jesus is and to have life in His name. And as we start chapter 13 today, we're only a few hours away from Jesus' death on the cross. Come with me, John 13, verse 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Before the sun sets again, it's probably evening at this point, before the sun sets again, Jesus will have taken the penalty for those who've turned their back on Him. At this moment, the night before His death, He knew His hour had come. It was a plan. It wasn't some accident. He knew that this is what He'd come for, that He'd come for a reason. He'd come to finish what He created the world for. But we're not going to get to His death until Easter. That's how slow motion John is taking us through these chapters. Because John wants us to be eyewitnesses of a number of these encounters that all happen in the next 24 hours in the life of Jesus. And at first, they don't see much. But if you have eyes to see them, they change the way you view yourself and the world. The first of these encounters that we'll look at today is just a simple meal. So let's read together John chapter 13, verse 2. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with a towel tied around him. Now, at first sight, it looks like a pretty mundane meal, doesn't it? Some guy gets up, he washes some other's feet. I don't, you probably don't do that at your household. We don't do it at ours. But for them, that kind of would have been a regular thing. As you came into a house, dusty feet, you would have washed people's feet. And they're there at a meal. Some guy gets up, washes their feet, and we're like, what's the big deal? But the first thing we see is the first point we'll look at today is the grandeur of Jesus. Point number one, you can write it down, the grandeur of Jesus. I want you to imagine for a moment being at that table. The disciples have got some idea of who Jesus is, but I want you to imagine for a moment sitting there with him, looking at him across the table, looking like a normal person, sounding like a normal person. 
It's so easy, isn't it, to think that Jesus is just merely a normal person. And unfortunately, that's the view of so many people in this world. We think Jesus is just a guy, maybe an influential guy, but, but just a guy. But the Apostle John tells us in verse 3 that Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God. If you were at that table at that moment, you were sitting face to face with the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, who has the most power, the most control, who is in charge of all things, who made all things, you are sitting opposite the creator of the universe. He'd come from God the Father's right-hand side and he was going back there, having completed what the whole universe was created to do. And the Father had given everything into his hands. At that moment, he was sitting there. Everything was in his control. There was not a bird in the universe, a butterfly, an ant, a bee, that was not in the control or under his control. How do you respond to someone so special? What do you do when you come across such power, such, such greatness? Have you ever had one of those moments where you meet someone famous? Who's kind of met someone famous? I'm not going to ask you who. Show of hands if you've met someone famous. A few people. Uh, I met my childhood hero when I was um, uh, probably about 18 or 19, uh, who was a guitarist by the name of Tommy Emmanuel, one of the kind of greatest guitarists in the world. And I got a chance to meet him, and I remember meeting him for the first time after thinking, this guy is amazing. And I'm in the queue, and I'm there, and I get to shake his hand, and I'm just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you're like, what do, you, what do you say at that moment? I'm like, yeah. all I had was my guitar strap, and I just went, can you sign that? And he signed my guitar strap, and I'm like, wow. And then I went away. I got a photo with him, and then I went away. Uh, see, you meet greatness, and we're just amazed at well, how inferior we are. We just, I just heard this guy play guitar amazingly. There's no way I can do that. But this, for these disciples, at this table, this is next level, isn't it? The creator of the universe, they are sitting opposite, who is in control of all things. But not everyone thought Jesus was great. And this is where we meet Judas. Point number two, the betrayal of Judas. The betrayal of Judas. 13 verse 2. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Now some people come along at this point and say, well, it wasn't Judas's fault. The devil put it in his heart. But what we kind of see is probably, probably both end. Satan has tempted him and, and Judas has given in to that. To betray Jesus. Now I want you to switch positions at the table for a moment. and It's always scary when we do this. But I want you to imagine that you're Jesus, okay, just for a moment. You're not really, you're not really, but imagine that you're Jesus. You are now sitting at the table with someone who has claimed to be your friend. But you know that they've been plotting to murder you. In fact, they've already enacted the plot to murder you. This person who's at the table is someone that you've loved and served and been generous and kind towards. But this person had already made a pact that for 30 pieces of silver, he'd provide false testimony and hand over Jesus to the authorities to be killed. And you are at the table with him. Now, some of you know the pain of what it is to have pretend friends. Whether that be people that, uh, uh, that you love and care for, that, but, that have not treated you rightly. Pretend friends with, within families and marriages co-workers, business partners, you felt the hurt and the betrayal of someone that you've loved and cared for who 
hasn't treated you the same way. Now imagine you're now sitting at the table with them, but you have all power and all authority in all the universe. Right? I know what I would do. I'd smoke them right there and then. Like every part of me wants to say, I'll show you who I am. I know what's going on. Look at this. I'd show the world the way they turned their back on me, the way they weren't speaking truth for me. Imagine the power that Jesus had at that moment. And Judas is sitting at the table. But what does he do? (laughs) Judas sits there and Jesus still loves him. He still loves him. Verse 4. Jesus got up from supper. He laid aside his outer clothing. He took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. Here's where we see point number three, the humility of the king. The humility of the king. The greatest, most powerful person in the universe does not stand on his rights. He doesn't act out of anger or rage or hurt at this moment. He simply loves with incredible humility. In Luke's account of these events, um, he tells us that right before this moment, right before this, this dinner, this supper, the disciples were arguing, probably on the way to the house, maybe even at the table, but they were arguing about who was the greatest amongst them. You can imagine them. When Jesus comes back, I, I was his friend first. No, but I told you about him. And that was, no, I'm going to sit at his right-hand side. No, I want to sit at his right-hand side. I'm taller than you. Oh, you've got a bigger mouth than me. And that's kind of what's going on. They're fighting about who is the greatest when Jesus comes in his kingdom. And the very moment that the disciples are reaching for position and status and authority and power, the one with the highest position and status and authority and power lays his life down, lays down his rights. He bows low and physically enacts a kind of a symbol of what Paul would later conceptually describe. He does this, Philippians 2 verse 6, this is what Paul says is happening, or about to happen. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Now, foot washing wasn't death. It's bad, don't get me wrong. For some of us, it might mean near-death experience, okay? But it wasn't death. It was an illustration of what Jesus was about to do on the cross. Remember, this is slow motion, and he's slowing down to show us what's about to happen. That Jesus would wash us clean from our rebellion against God, that we needed cleansing, and that he was the one who was about to do it. In the ancient Near East, foot washing was one of the lowest of low tasks. Think of it this way. It's kind of like, imagine you go and offer to wipe someone else's bottom. You're like, oh, you shouldn't say that in church. If you're thinking that, that's exactly right. That's how we should be feeling. If it makes you go, oh, that's gross. I don't want to wipe someone else's backside. That's the view that the Jewish world had of washing one another's feet. And we want to sit in that and go, this is not something that you kind of want to go, yeah, sign me up. (laughs) In fact, Even the Jewish slaves, if they had a non-Jewish slave, the Jewish slaves wouldn't do this. They'd leave it for the non-Jewish slaves because it was so ceremonial and clean and so just it was not right. But the picture that John paints, the picture of what happens is that the king of kings 
The Lord of Lords, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, does what no one else wants to do. He steps down and washes the feet of everyone at the table. Now put yourself back at the table for a moment. Can you imagine going, well, I know Jesus, I know a bit of who he is. I've got a fair idea if you're one of the disciples, I've seen what he's done. You shouldn't be washing my feet. You can imagine the embarrassment. I hate going to the doctor and then you've got to like drop your pants for some reason. Even that, even if you've got underwear on, I'm still like, ugh. And imagine this, washing their feet. It would have been improper for a mere house guest ever to do this, let alone the king of the universe. But here we see Jesus humble himself. And we're going to spend some time here looking at three reasons that he humbles himself. Number one, he humbles himself to do this because he loves them. Because he loves them. This whole section of chapter 13 starts out, having in verse 1 on the screen, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John wants to show us that this action is coming from a place of not that the people that he's loving are lovable, but that he is the loving God. That he does this because he loves. And what we see is that real love, it isn't clean. It's not distant. It isn't just a feeling, but it's a determination to put others before yourself, to to lay down your rights, your power, your security, your comfort for another. The king of kings love those who don't deserve his love. He willingly stoops to become part of his creation. He, he dies a criminal's death so that we might be washed clean. The picture throughout the Bible is of Jesus who loves, who loves us so much. He humbles himself because he loves us. But the second reason he humbles himself is because we need cleansing. We need cleansing. At this moment, Peter is kind of watching Jesus go around the table. I don't know where he sat in order. They probably thought about it. But he's watching Jesus go around. You're thinking, what's Peter going to say? Because he's always got something in his mouth. Usually his foot probably won't need to be cleaned. But um, he's sitting at the table and it, Jesus gets to him and he won't have it. He, he won't let it go on. Verse 6 of chapter 13. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You can kind of hear his his head going, this can't happen. I've just said you're the promised king. I won't let you humiliate yourself. You don't get it, Jesus. You can't be doing this. Why are you touching my feet? That, That shouldn't happen. And on the surface, you kind of think it feels like Peter's being quite humble. But underneath this seeming humility is actually pride. For Peter thinks he doesn't need Jesus to wash him. Jesus answered, verse 7, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter says. Always keen to step forward and speak. It's a little note for those of us who think with our mouths. (laughs) Don't slow down. (laughs) You will never wash my feet. See, Peter, he can't handle it. No, no. This, this won't happen. It made me think, how often do we look at the actions of Jesus and then compare them to the life of ourselves and think, it's a little unnecessary that he had to go through all of that. Like, well, why did Jesus need to go to such an extent? Am I really that bad? Like, why the pain? Why the death on the cross? Why did God set it up that way? 
and we miss how needy that we actually are. We miss how dirty we actually are, rejecting the true and living God, not living for Him and exchanging our love of the Creator for created things. And today, that might be you. For the first time, you're seeing that the grandeur of the Creator of the universe became flesh to die in our place. And you're starting to get a glimpse of, wow, am I in that much trouble? And the answer is yes. We need cleansing. We need our sins to be dealt with. And maybe for you, you're having a stepping stone moment as God's Word by His Spirit is speaking to you today, saying, you need to come to Jesus. You need to be washed by Jesus. You need to be cleansed by Jesus. Or perhaps for you, you might have forgotten. You've become so familiar with Jesus that you've been following Him for a while and your life has been, yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm going through life and I'm serving Jesus, but you've forgotten whose table you've been invited to sit at and how different we and Jesus are. He's the creator of all things. And look at the way we act towards Him and the way that we treat Him. Do you see the incomparably great difference between Him and us? And recognize we need to be cleansed. Jesus replied to Peter, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. See, if you you want to come to Jesus, if you want the life that He offers, you need to be washed. Our rebellion needs to be dealt with. This is less than 24 hours before Jesus' death, and he's setting the context of the cleansing work of God for us, wiping away our sin. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but whenever something horrific happens, most people do the same thing. Whether it's been an assault or or abuse of some kind or or witnessing some tragedy or perhaps maybe even doing something horrific yourself. Nearly everyone after they experience these sort of horrific events does the same thing. Do you know what that is? They have a shower. They, They wash themselves. And there's a sense when we see things that aren't right or do things that aren't right that we just feel dirty, wrong, shameful. Jesus is saying... We need washing. We've turned our back on God. You can't do it yourself. You need me. You can't clean yourself up. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Peter, slow to think, slow to get it, fast to speak, realizes in some way, then says, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and head. He's like, no, no, you shouldn't do that. Actually, I want it all. He's like, bring out the fire hose. Not exactly, but... That's the kind of picture that he gets. Wash all of me. Jesus responds by saying, well, if you've already been cleansed, you only need your feet washed. And there's some kind of uh, disagreement around what he's kind of saying there. I think what he's basically saying is that Jesus' death that's coming up will be enough to cleanse the world. It is sufficient for all that he's died in that place. But actually, we do need to come and, in a sense, repent. To, to, to confess. And perhaps that's a picture of what's coming up. So there's stuff to look into there in our connect groups this week. But at this point, Jesus humbles himself because he loves these people. He humbles himself because we need cleansing. And the third reason he humbles himself is as an example. It's as an example. 
an example of how we need to respond to him. Come with me to verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. See, recognizing who Jesus is and then how he has loved us, this changes how we view ourselves, doesn't it? What's the most sacrificial thing you've ever done in your life? It's nothing compared to what Jesus did. It changes the way you view him, the creator of all things, coming to earth, dying for us. Recognizing who we are and who he is. Have you seen that? Secondly, it changes how we respond to others. See, as followers of Jesus, there's no hierarchy. There's not this person, you know, they've got extra credit points and so they sit above everyone else. Uh, Or or within Christian circles, you know, there's some super Christians. They wear a cape and there are other ones that, that don't get the cape and they're not as good as, you know, they've not done as many things or prayed as much. We're all beggars at the foot of the cross. All of us need Jesus' death in our place. There's no place for seeking power and position and pride and popularity within the church. None of it. And if we're doing that, stop. Stop now. Look to Jesus and recognize He is here and we're like, down there. But what we see is a call to be like Jesus. To lay down our preferences, our rights to serve others. And one of the things I'm massively thankful for to God is that we're not a church that's filled full of power plays and one-upmanship. I've not come across that in the eight years we've been here. I've not seen that happen. It's so exciting to see the way God has captivated each and every one of us to point us to Jesus. And I think that's because we get that we've been captured by Jesus, captivated by who He is, and we want to serve Him. And you see that every Sunday. It's such a thing to thank God for, that, that, that in the hearts and lives of each and every one of us, God is using us to serve Him and lay down our preferences and priorities for His glory and for one another. I mean, people are at my house this morning picking up a trailer at 7.30 in the morning. People were here packing things up and setting them up so that we could have church together this morning. There were people preparing things and kids' church lessons throughout the week, practicing songs, people thinking about what they'll prepare for morning tea, people thinking through what connect group they'll go to and how they can serve in these different areas. It, It's really exciting to see the way God is working in you and through you. Because you get what Jesus has done. But the thing I'm challenged by is this. I'm challenged to ask myself, sure, we'll go a certain way. But how far is too far in loving others? What lengths will I go to for the sake of the gospel? Where do I pull back on loving others? As I was going through this passage this week, I was reflecting, would I have washed the disciples' feet? Would I have done that? Would I have wanted to lay down my life for the others? Or would I have been at the table going, it's not my job, it's a slave's job, it's kind of Jewish custom? I think I would have said the latter. How about you? But the King of Kings walks in and 
and washes their feet. The question for us is, what things for the sake of the gospel won't I do? Because I care about my rights and my comforts and my privileges. What things for the sake of loving others won't I do? Because I think it's beneath me. Because I think it's not my job, not my responsibility. What does it look like to love today? Here's a few reflections that I kind of thought through. Love is saying a word that's true but hard to hear. Love is accepting a word that's true but hard to hear. Love is counting the good of others as better than the good of yourself. It's storing treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth. Love is suffering ridicule because you offer to pray with someone at work or at uni or at home and they laugh at you because they, they think that you believe in a God. It's sacrificing an extra 30 minutes of relaxation at night to invest in your kids rather than just sending them to bed and hoping they'll stay there. <laughs> Wishful thinking. It's to model godliness with them. To, to read the Bible with them, or perhaps to discuss your life and theirs and how they're going. And it's to spend that time because of Jesus laying down his rights for us. It's, it's turning up to connect group when you're tired. It's not turning up to connect group when you're sick. Like, stay home, love others. <laughs> it's inviting those friends and neighbors and family who don't know Jesus to explaining Christianity and taking the steps to do it. Oh, it might hurt our reputation. But if you love them, you'll lay down your life for them. I'll lay down my life for them. It's radically putting others and their eternal destiny and their need for cleansing above our own rights and comforts and privileges. And it's Christ-like. And it's godly. When I was 15, there was a guy in our church, he's probably about 10 years older than me, who opened up his house for us um, people my age and a number of others, there's about 12 of us, he opened up his house every Friday night for us to come around and just hang out. Uh, we had like a Bible study time and there was someone else that he'd invited along uh, there as well, one of his friends. And he had a pool table and we loved to play pool and so we, we hung out at his place. Um, and what was clear was that this guy, he could have been doing a heap of other things. He had a great job, he was earning a good amount of money, but he spent every Friday night opening his house to a stinky bunch of 15, 16, 17-year-olds. And he'd open up the Bible as well. And we'd take it in turns and just read some of the Bible and chat about it. And it kind of got me thinking, why would he do that? It's because he'd experienced the love of Jesus. And you saw him laying down his life. He'd been captured by what Jesus had done. And he wanted these kind of youth, these people that were 10 years younger than him at our church, to get it as well and to stay trusting in Jesus. And he couldn't help but service. Friends, recognizing the privilege of being loved by Jesus changes the way you live, provides a stepping stone moment to lay down our priorities and opportunities and privileges and comforts. Recognizing the love of Jesus, who all things have been given to him and his love shown to us should fuel our love for others. 
Not in order to clean ourselves up, we can't do that, but to let Him cleanse us in His work at the cross. Recognizing the love of Jesus changes how we live. Jesus loved us so that we might love others. In a moment, we're going to celebrate together what's called the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that Jesus instituted probably on this night that he encouraged his disciples to reflect on the reality of what he was doing at the cross, that his body was broken for them, that his blood was about to be poured out for them. And he tells them to to do this as as often as they drink from this cup. And we're going to celebrate that together because of what Jesus has done. And we're going to pass around some grape juice and some bread in a moment. But before we do, I think it's right to come to our Lord, recognize that we need washing, And ask him to focus our eyes on him. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, we are amazed that your son Jesus would come to earth and die in our place. We're amazed at what little things we swap out for relationship with Jesus. For 30 silver pieces, for $300, Judas swapped eternity. And we so often turn our backs on relationship with you and life forever because of something so fleeting and short. Please forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for the times we have not treated you as we ought, for the times that we live with our own priorities and preferences above yours and above others. Please fix our eyes on Jesus, on what has been done, that we've been cleansed in him if we trust in him. And help us to live for you. And today, Lord, if it's the first time for some of us who want to come to you and want to have that relationship with you because of Jesus, we pray that you would help us to trust you and help us to follow you. And Father, as we follow you, we ask you to help us to love one another. Show us how we can love each other. Show us how we can lay down our priorities and comforts and security for the spread of your kingdom and for the love of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.